This is the PR Pod, the podcast that brings you expert tips for working in PR and finding your niche. With your host, Brooke Burns. Welcome to the PR Pod, the essential podcast for emerging public relations professionals. This episode, I'm joined by Julie Jarrett. Julie is a communications director for Cathay Pacific Airways in the Americas and is responsible for managing all internal and external communications for the airline. She's also a friend of mine. We met when we were both working in London more than a decade ago, so it's really lovely to have her on the podcast. Welcome to the PR Pod, Julie. Thank you, Brooke. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into the world of aviation PR, which I am uh, personally very fascinated with because I love airlines and I love airports and I love flying, um, I don't know whether you and I have ever discussed or if we have, it certainly was long, too long ago and I can't recall. What was your pathway into public relations? How did you find yourself in there? Did you study PR at university or college? I did not. I I feel like there's kind of a couple different people in PR. There's the people who studied PR. They always, you know, had that track. I came sort of by accident. I did take a PR course at university um, over one semester. I actually wasn't a fan. I didn't love it. I don't know if it was the instructor or it just didn't inspire me. Um, So I literally fell into it by accident. I started with a marketing coordinator role and sort of made a lateral move into PR and kind of went, oh, actually, I, I do like this. And what was it that you liked about it? Yeah, I'm a pretty social person, which is helpful if you're in PR. So I really enjoyed the meeting new people, chatting to people on the phone and pitching journalists. Um, I love writing. I've always been into writing ever since I was a child. Um, So it allowed me to flex that muscle as well. Did you start doing some PR activity as part of that marketing role? A tiny bit. So in my marketing coordinator role, I I did dabble a tiny bit in PR. And then, as I said, I made a lateral move um, into PR, working for a small PR agency. And, you know, so I think a lot of times when you're a young person coming into a new career, you kind of think that you know what PR is, but you don't. So a little knowledge can be dangerous. So I, I really had so much to learn. And what were your biggest learning curves when you were in that first full-time PR role? Yeah, I think, well, you know, back in those days, it, a lot of the the clips, we would put together clip books, like physical copies, and, you know, you would photocopy the clips and make these books and bind them together. And so there was a lot of admin. And so I think you have to have a flexibility to your approach when you first enter any career. But I think your initial reaction when you start a new career, when you're fresh out of university is, you know, you want to jump right in, you want to manage things. Whereas, you know, I was doing some of, let's face it, the grunt work. But I think that even that, it really, uh, it gives you the building blocks for your career to really understand you know, why am I doing this? And, um, and you just learn a lot by shadowing the managers and account directors who are leading you. Um, so I think you just have to learn to take baby steps and kind of um, sip the ocean before you drink it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also about um, always observing what the bigger picture is. So yes, you might be doing what may seem like quite a mundane, tedious task, uh, collating the clippings, but it gives you the opportunity to read through what coverage that that client or that brand is getting, and then um, 
and then observe how that came about. You probably overheard a conversation maybe when one of your colleagues was pitching that in or you were sitting in a meeting where they were talking through a strategy. So now you kind of understand how they got from talking about an idea or bringing a client on and getting that piece of, of coverage. So I think as much as you can when you are in those first uh, graduate uh, roles at the start of your career is to really get a sense of what the little job you're doing, how that fits into the bigger picture. Definitely. And I think as well, when you're doing things like clip books, you can start to understand what ROI means. And what does that mean for those that don't know? Yeah, well, ROI, obviously return on investment. So PR measurement is obviously a very big thing in our industry. And, um, you know, the thinking has evolved over the years in terms of what makes a good clip. Back then, when I first started in PR, it was all about magazines and newspapers. People wanted hard copies, something they could tangibly grasp because that was um, that was just the way things were back then. You know, um, the internet was still evolving and I think a lot of people were still not 100% comfortable with how much return on investment they were getting from just a clip on the internet. Whereas now we know that, of course, a clip on the internet lives there forever. It, um, you know, it, it drives your SEO results, whereas, you know, a newspaper may not have the same big impact that we once, that it once did. So things have certainly evolved around, um, around that front. But then I was also quite lucky in that I started out working for a small PR agency. And so, you know, I was given the opportunity to try lots of different things and, again, showing my age a little bit, but we used to phone journalists a lot. I feel like now it's really evolved very much towards email, but we used to just pick up the phone and cold call journos. And so I really got my feet wet. Um, you know, I was the American working um, in a UK agency. So I sort of had that novelty factor and people would hear my voice and think, oh, well, where in the States are you calling from? So I would just strike up conversations and, and get to know journals that way. And I, I'm quite chatty. And so I would always have a good time um, just having a chat to different journals. And so you mentioned that you moved to London. So what part, uh, what stage of your career did you move to London? Had you done the marketing coordinator style roles? Was, were you in London when you got your first PR role? Is that right? I was, yeah. So I did, um, gosh, about two years here in California where I'm from working as a marketing coordinator and then had the opportunity to move over to London where I had spent some time at university and just fell in love with the city and wanted to live there and, you know, found it so exciting and fast-paced and cosmopolitan. So uh, I did get the opportunity to go after, see, I guess I'd been out of university for a year or so. And um, so, yeah, never look back. I spent about seven or so years working in PR there. I know it's been a while since you have worked there, but do you recall what the key differences were? And obviously in your reflection now, because... Um, you weren't working in PR prior to going to London, but what are the core differences between the UK and the US and their approach to PR? Is there any differences? Is there differences in how the agencies are managed? Is there any differences from media relations um, from that side of things that you can recall? Yeah, it's interesting because I would say that on the whole, the kind of bread and butter PR, so to speak, is is pretty much the same in both places. 
Uh, where it's different is, you know, I was always in London, which like what, 90% of the major media is based in. So you have the whole media landscape at your fingertips um, when, when you're in London. So when I came back to the US, I was in San Francisco, which is I would call a secondary media market, um, you know, after New York, LA. And so the PR that I was doing in San Francisco was a lot more local, regional style PR. So for me, that was sort of a, a mindset that I had to shift. Whereas, of course, we were going after, you know, say the New York Times and some of the national magazines and newspapers um, here in the U.S. But um, for, you know, I would say 75% of clients, they really wanted to target local media. I remember one of the things that I um, found really mind boggling. So in Australia, you go to university and you study something that is in line with what you are going to be working in. Of course, you know, people make changes throughout their career, but, you know, I was going to work in PR. So I did PR and marketing. If, you know, um, if you wanted to be a um, zoologist, you studied zoology. And I use the zoology reference because I worked at a PR agency and none of the people there had done any university degrees in anything communications. This is when I was in London. And one had, in fact, done a degree in zoology. And then her first job was in PR. And I found that was pretty consistent. People tended to go to university to study something they were inter personally interested in. And then they go and found a job after that. And they might have no relation to it. Did you, did you find that as well? Absolutely. In fact, um, one of the men that I worked with in London at a PR agency, um, it was his second career. His first career was as a police officer. Wow. So yeah, certainly people from all walks of life. Um, you spent about 10 years in agency PR in London and the US before you moved in-house. Was that a strategic decision to move out of agency and get some in-house experience? Or did that just happen to be the job that appealed to you at the time and it happened to be in-house? It was definitely strategic. I had worked, as you say, around 10 years or so at, let's see, one, two, three, four different agencies in London and San Francisco. And I think I just felt like I wanted to see what was on the other side. Um, I'm actually married to a PR guy who made the jump in-house a few years before I did. So I could kind of see myself in an in-house role and decided to give it a shot. And um, what do you miss about agency? Anything? I do. Actually, I miss a lot of the camaraderie that comes with an agency. Um, like you and I, for example, we worked together how many years ago? 15, 17 yeah, maybe years mm -hmm. ago. And you know, we're still connected and we had a great group of friends at the agency we worked for in London. And, um, you know, I love being able to just kind of call a spontaneous brainstorm with uh, your colleagues in an agency. Um, you know, certainly in-house has many great benefits. But for me, I just sort of felt like the, that was the end of the road for me on the agency side. The first, I guess, the, the core in-house travel role you had was with Cathay. And you've been with Cathay for how long now? Eight and a half years, believe it or not. Wow. So did you have much travel or aviation PR experience before applying for that role? So I did, but, but not 
aviation. I would say I was more of a travel generalist or a kind of hotel specialist. Um, the aviation part was new to me, um, but I had started specializing in hospitality travel PR in about 2004, I believe. So, you know, I had quite a few years under my belt. But um, CAFE certainly took a chance on me and it, it worked out very well. And that was one of my questions. Well, I had two. One was what appealed to you about working at an airline? And number two, what appealed to them about you? Because you didn't have solid aviation. So what was it about your experience that made them go, this is the right person for their job? Yeah, I think Cathay Pacific... Um, particularly here in the Americas, we definitely hire for a culture fit more than skills. So obviously skills are very important and particularly in specialist roles. But for someone like me, I think um, because it's, I'm a, I'm the only person who um, handles communications in the Americas. So I think for someone um, who's going to be representing the airline, who, you know, collaborates with a lot of different departments. They really wanted somebody who was going to get on well with everybody. And, um, you know, obviously that's worked out pretty well because I have a lot of great in relationships with my internal stakeholders. Um, whereas the aviation side, I don't think they were too worried about that because they knew that it was something that I would be trained up in. And I did, I got to grips with it fairly quickly because I had to. Uh, but for me, you know, I was certainly daunted before I joined Cathay. And, you know, you certainly have the, um, the voice in your head saying, can you really do this? But for me, it, it's been absolutely the joy and opportunity of a lifetime. And it wasn't just that it was in aviation. It was that Cathay Pacific is a global brand. And that really appealed to me. So tell us a bit about your role and what it includes. I wear a lot of different hats at Cathay Pacific, um, but as communications director for the Americas, I mainly handle internal communications for our staff here in the Americas, which we have staff all the way up from Canada down to Mexico, and um, also partners throughout South America and the Caribbean. Um, I handle external communications, so your media relations, your stakeholder relations. Um, I do crisis communications as well, which was very new to me. I didn't have a lot of experience in that before. Um, and I also work in CSR, corporate social responsibility, community engagement, and I work with the local executives here on thought leadership and speaking engagements. That's a that's a lot. It's a lot. It runs the gamut. And, you know, I am I'm a team of one PR person in a wider marketing organization. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very scrappy and I outsource where I need to. So I've got agencies supporting me because it, it would really be too much. It's a really big region. I mean, obviously, pre-COVID, uh, life was very different for you. So 
Can you give us an outline of some of the, I guess, the tentpole campaigns or the major projects that you'll work on throughout a uh, throughout a year? I guess, I guess, more from the external comms perspective. Yeah, of course. So, in any given year, I would typically be working on you know a launch to a new destination. So, in the last few years, Cafe launched um, flights to Boston, Washington D.C., Seattle, in pretty quick succession. So, there was always um, a flurry of activity going around going if we had a new um, a new city that we were flying to um, cargo is a big um, part of our business Cathay Pacific actually has more cargo destinations here in the Americas than we do passenger ports so cargo is a big business for us so you know we have a lot of fun stories to share on the cargo side as well so sometimes it's a launch sometimes it's um, something new that's happening in one of our lounges um, could be anything. Over the past year, because you know everything has travel has really shrunk back, um, and unfortunately, some of our passenger ports have gone offline temporarily um, until you know the travel recovery starts again. My attention has really shifted more towards internal communications and the stakeholder relations and engagement. You talked about the um, the fact that it is a global brand and the messaging that comes out of a global brand. I imagine you have to tweak that for your market to make sure it's appropriate for people in the Americas, which could be a slightly different message that may get um, a tweet for the Australian market or for the European market. Is is that fair to say? It is. And I think it's important to remember that even though Cathay Pacific is a global brand, our home is in Hong Kong. So the messaging that our head office is putting out is probably more geared around the Hong Kong audience and stakeholders. Whereas for me here in the Americas, I'm sort of um, distilling that messaging, as you say, for the, the local audience here in the Americas. And do you often get time to plan out your strategies? You know, working in-house compared to agency, and agency you often have new clients coming through quite regularly or existing clients of various different projects you want to work on. It can be quite fast-paced. Is in-house at Cafe, do you get that time that you would love to put strategies together or is it equally as fast-paced? The answer to your question, it depends. Um, <laughs> it really, um, there's peaks and troughs, like, you know, like in agency life as well, where you have certain periods where you're crazy busy and then things settle down a little bit. I would say in general, I do have more control over my destiny in terms of my my timing of my day, um, and then remembering that I have um, agency support as well. So because you do look after so many different elements of the business, how do you prioritize what you do and when? I know when I was um, the PR manager in-house for a really large hospitality company here, we had 70 or 80 different entities some of those were pubs some of those were restaurants some of those were bars some of them were function spaces and they all had their own managers or directors that felt whatever their venue was was they were doing that week on the next month was the most important thing so you were constantly trying to balance everybody's needs and requirements is that similar with you when you've got internal and external comms and csr and all these other kinds of things that you need to try and balance how you use your time most effectively Yes, I would say that's one of my biggest challenges because I am pulled in a lot of different directions. 
Um, I think that I've gotten pretty good over the last eight plus years at prioritizing, at um, you know, saying no where I need to, very politely pushing back where I need to, and really working with my um, the executive team to making to make sure that our priorities are aligned and that I am adding the most value where I can, so I don't get pulled in maybe a direction that is not um, in alignment with the overall local strategy. When it comes to the challenging elements of your roles, especially during the COVID pandemic, so the last, you know, what are we, um, I think we're recording this in March 2021, so certainly over the last 12 months, what have been the most challenging elements of your role during that time? I think number one has been the shift from maybe... 75% external communications to now 75% internal communications. And also the change of the pace. Um, Let me rephrase that. Not the change of the pace. The pace at which COVID happened, I think, took us all by surprise. January of 2020, it was something we were aware of. It was in the news by February 2020, hmm, gosh, travel's starting to slow down a little bit. And oh, there's a couple cases in the US. Flash forward to mid-March, if you recall, the whole world shut down. So I think that just the acceleration that we went from zero to 60, none of us really saw that coming. So I guess on that, you mentioned that you hadn't had a lot of crisis communication experience coming into this role. So firstly, how did you get your head around that? And second, I guess, to that, um, are there any key principles that you try to keep in mind when it comes to managing internal external comms through a crisis? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I pretty quickly started immersing myself in learning about crisis as soon as I joined CAFE. Um, the NTSB, which is the National Transportation Safety Board here in the States, um, organization based out of Washington, D.C., they actually run really excellent courses on crisis communications, among other things, uh, for airline professionals. So that was one of the first things I did was I took a course at NTSB. Um, but the thing is, with crisis, you can practice and practice and practice, um, but you can still not be prepared necessarily for everything. So, um, you know, I go to as many courses as I can. We do internal tabletops and exercises for crisis preparedness. Um, but it is something, it's one of those things that um, you shouldn't ever feel comfortable with crisis communications because that means that you are sort of maybe a little too relaxed about it. I agree, yeah. So in terms of key principles then, I guess it's about having a plan in place, being flexible enough to be able to modify or adapt that plan. Um, What do you have to keep in mind when you're thinking about internal comms and external comms? Because obviously I imagine timing is really important. You want to make sure that people working for your brand feel comfortable or they're aware of a decision that business has made. But at the same time, you've got media, you know, knocking on your door, wanting to get clarification on facts or information or statements. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're very lucky at Cathay in the Americas. I'm going to 
name drop here. We use an app called In Case of Crisis, which um, has really helped us to streamline those things that you're talking about. So in the heat of the moment, I don't have to either pull out a piece of paper or even go to a Google Doc. I just go to my app um, and there's a checklist and you know, things are delegated out to different members of the team so that we're all collaborating together to make sure that all these things get done. So on, sorry to interrupt you there on that app. So that obviously is a standard app. And then is that modified for Cathay? So at some point in time, a process has been created and that's reflected in the app or does the app just provide a general non-Cathay Pacific guide of what you should be doing? It has been customized for us. Um, we have a guy on our team who is very, very process oriented, thankfully. And he has worked with this app in order to customize it for us. And um, it's really been invaluable. We've used it at many different exercises and it's just really helpful to keep people in their lanes. And that's one of the key things I learned at the NTSB training eight and a bit years ago that I mentioned is it's really important in a crisis to stay in your lane and not just that, to know what your lane is. What are the boundaries of my lane? Yeah, absolutely. I think so many times people um, feel it might be their responsibility to start talking to their team about what has happened, but that hasn't necessarily been approved from above or that information needs to be carefully um, managed or even phrased. I mean, you know, just a couple of words can uh, have a huge impact negatively on how people receive the information. So it's so important to ensure that there's communications people involved to ensure that each and every word and every sentence and every paragraph or every media release is, is not inflaming the situation. Exactly. And I will say that our Hong Kong head office they are in charge of crisis response, but we certainly have to be up to speed here locally because of the nature of the geography and time differences. So if something were to happen in the middle of the night, Hong Kong time, then it would be our local team who would be starting the accident or emergency response. So you mentioned that you're the only one uh, in the communications, uh, you know, certainly in-house team um, in the Americas for Cathay Pacific and that you do outsource some stuff, I imagine, to either consultants or agencies. Is that a typical setup for the um, represent the communications representative in the Americas for most airlines or do some airlines have slightly bigger teams? Um, it's an interesting question. I think it's a fairly typical setup depending on the size of the airline within the Americas. So if you want to if you want to get into working for an airline because like me you adore planes and airports and all those kind of things, it's a it's a tough one to crack into it sounds like. It can be. Yeah, I think it probably is and you know, I think you and I have discussed this before. I'm a big believer in kismet and a little bit of luck and being at the right place at the right time. Um, you know, I find that our careers just sort of take these interesting and unusual paths sometimes. Um, I always wanted to work in the travel industry, but I don't think aviation PR ever really crossed my mind, to be perfectly honest. Um, But, you know, for people who are interested in aviation and travel, I would say just be persistent, volunteer, network like crazy. 
but B, I guess, also be mindful of the fact that there may be very few junior roles available. I mean, we're talking in Americas here. I mean, Australia be even less. So Mm -hmm. um, in those larger markets, there's very few junior roles. So perhaps the reality is, is like you said, getting that experience in in travel sectors and just building up that catalogue of experience. So you're in a position that when a role comes around, it's probably going to be more of a managerial position and you've got enough of a body of work underneath you and experience um, to be considered for something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so on on that, in terms of um, behaviours or attributes that make someone stand out in a PR role outside of aviation, just in general, because lots of the listeners of this podcast are emerging PR practitioners, so they may be students currently or graduates or, you know, could be at the start of their career. And I think sometimes it's helpful to think about the things that people who have have established careers and have been in PR for, you know, decades, as some of us have been. Um, what are those key attributes that stand out that really make you go, wow, that really that person is exceptional at their job? What are, what are those things yeah. for you? Yeah, um, I mean, there's so many attributes, but a couple that spring to mind would be grit, flexibility, tenacity. Um, I don't remember if I've shared this story with you before, but I was probably two or so years into my PR career in the UK. I was working in tech PR. I was desperate to get into travel and lifestyle PR. And I was working with a recruitment consultant who said to me point blank, you will never get your dream job because I think she was she was trying to fill her quotas and she put me forward for a role and I sort of, I was lukewarm on it. And it really stuck with me because I remember thinking, I'm gonna prove her wrong. So I just, I was really tenacious and I just kept going at it and kept going at it. And so yeah, the tenacity, it gets you pretty far in PR in my experience. I agree. I think that ties into drive as well. Drive and motivation, they're kind of all interlinked, aren't they, in terms of um, those the people that are really hungry for something are the ones that stand up because they usually go above and beyond to, to get there. Absolutely. And, you know, the other attributes like creativity, integrity, you know, these things are all super important in a PR career. But I think mm. there's just something about, you know, having that grit and tenacity to keep at it. I think attention to detail is such an important one as well. Even at your at the top end and you're, you know, the communications director at Cathay for the Americas or you are working at an agency in an internship, um, a lot of the time your effectiveness as a PR comes down to your ability to manage your tasks and your time well, whether they are you're managing monumental decisions or whether you are managing putting the clippings together and taking notes in a meeting and researching a bunch of influences, you're still trying to juggle multiple things at a time. And if you can't devise a system that works for you, that enables you to manage your tasks and times efficiently and to meet deadlines and to be able to communicate where you are sitting at any one time with a task, um, if you can't do that at the start of your career, that's going to impact you and your ability, I think, to to progress. I totally agree. And I'm going to name drop here for a minute because um, I thought that I was detail oriented when I started out in PR. And then I went to work for a small agency, um, Stuart Muir Communications in London, and the MD, Louise Stuart Muir, really taught me attention to detail. And it has stuck with me my entire career. 
what principles what what was it that she that she um taught you that that you found so uh, effective louise had this amazing knack for teaching consistency and i think even though i thought i might be detail oriented there were some consistency issues maybe in writing a contact report for a client or a monthly status report where you know I would print out a hard copy, she would proofread it. And, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, an account supervisor would have just said, yeah, it's fine, it's good enough. But no, she taught me to really go through it line by line and make sure that every T was crossed and I was dotted. And, um, you know, she just really taught me the importance of taking pride in your work. And I think that is what has really stuck with me. Yeah, one of the things that I learned early in my career was the value of every single word that you use and to, you know, your vocab has to be really decent and you need to continue reading multiple things because um, there may be a more compelling word that communicates your point and just by changing one word, it change, changes the, um, the uh, not the intonation, the, um, see, this is really, my, obviously my vocab's great. Um <laughs> It can really change how that sentence is uh, consumed or interpreted by whoever the audience may be. And you can really make something far more compelling by using language. And that language doesn't have to be over the top Shakespearean and lofty. And it just has to be appropriate for the audience that you're talking to. So I was really taught to go through every single word. Is, is, is each of those words as, as good as you've got in your vocab? Use a thesaurus and um, really think about how something is constructed. And I, um, that's something that stays with me now, obviously, but I can read key messages or I read um, just information about a, um, like a summary of a company or something, even if I'm not working on it. And it just really grates me now when I read something, I think, oh my gosh, you've, the words you've chosen are appalling. That's not doing you any justice at all. It really annoys my partner. Yeah. I'm constantly picking up on things. Yeah, I, I know what you mean though. You just sort of read something and think that's a bit sloppy. Um, and something that I do now, and obviously we don't always have the luxury of time in PR, but if I have something important that I need to write, I will write it. And then I will leave it for anywhere from two to 24 hours, depending on how much time I have, and revisit it. Because when you look at it with a fresh set of eyes, you will write it and edit it completely differently than you would if you were just cranking out something that you have to get done in 30 minutes. I do exactly the same thing. Less so... um before I had my agency on my own, um, I had a team around me and, um, and, a, and a business partner. So I could write something very quickly. She could edit it and she was a previous journalist. So very quickly we could turn something out and, you know, and spit it out. But that didn't necessarily make my writing any better. Sure, she may have picked up some things and I may have picked up some things for her. Um, but you didn't really sit with things. And then when I moved to the model of having my business on my own, I had to work out how to do this. I was having no one to edit my work anymore. I knew that I was a reasonable, strong writer. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and that's exactly the, the process I started to do. I always will write a media release or key messages or something that's important. And I will leave it always for 24 hours. 
Um, and I always make sure I task things out. So if something's due, I always give myself enough time to be able to have that night to sleep on it and come back to it. And if it's super important, there might even be another night that I come back to it um, because it's just, it's a fresh perspective and things come to you, don't they, after time. But when you're in the heat of the moment, sometimes it's really hard to, to find all your best work. Exactly. Like in 24 hours, I'm going to say, oh, I should have said that to Brooke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So one thing you mentioned in regards to why you felt you were um, the best employment choice for when you got your job at Cathay was that you were a good cultural fit. And I think cultural fit is something that a lot of people in PR probably don't comprehend um, or probably don't understand has a really heavy weighting when it comes to employment. I mean, I've employed a number of people in PR before and I would say that your experience comes into maybe 50, 60% of it. And about 40% is a cultural fit. I would prefer someone who has slightly less experience and is a really good fit for the job and for the team. What is your experience? Because obviously you have um, worked with lots of PR agencies as well. Is that the same philosophy when working with them? 100%. You know, and I think as you rightly point out that when you're first starting in PR, you maybe underestimate just how much relationship building is involved in the career. And um, certainly when I've hired PR agencies or, you know, um, helped to recruit staff members in-house, um, it's really about building that relationship. And as you say, if, if the skills aren't 100% there, then that doesn't worry me so much because it can be taught. Anything can be taught to someone who's intelligent and engaged and enthusiastic. But, you know, PR is so much about those relationships that it really, um, it really plays into that cultural fit of making sure that you have the right person in the role. And I think that extends to media relationships as well. You know, I'm in the hospitality sector here in Sydney and um, there's probably uh, another six or seven hospitality, 100% hospitality focused agencies in Sydney. So it's not a huge amount, but, um, you know, at any one time they could call any one of those agencies if they needed a quick quote or they had a a broader feature and they needed some support on there. And I'm certainly not um, saying that I'm the only one that they call, uh, but those opportunities come about if you have a very good relationship with someone and they know you're a quick work and you've got attention to detail and you pull everything together without them having to chase you, they're more likely to come to you with an opportunity as well. So it really, I, I think when you're at the start of your PR career, you're so focused or maybe it's drilled in that you've got to develop relationships with media, but there has to be a lot of trust and authenticity behind the relationship it's not about just having a connection with someone and saying hi I'm a PR I work for here I'd love to you know get to know you better it really is about establishing a I guess a two-way relationship definitely and I think it's trying to take the transactional element out of that media relations I'll give you this if you give me that it really is building that trust in a relationship that allows you to have longevity in a PR career. One thing I heard um, not 
too long, a few years ago, certainly not at the start of my career, was always being credit to journalists, always be giving them more than you need from them. So when you do need something from them, they're more likely to give it to you. And that possibly is easier said than done. But if you can spoon feed them stuff, you know, they're going to be really happy with or to make their life easier um, or to give them exclusives or to give them opportunities, then it's much more likely they're going to be receptive when you need a favor. It's so true. And I'm going to do another name drop here. Um, it was my first role in travel and hospitality PR. Um, it was a small, tiny PR firm in London with some really heavy hitting clients. It's called Magellan PR. And the managing director, Sue Lowry, really took me under her wing and showed me the ropes about travel and hospitality. And one thing that she did and taught me to do, which it had never occurred to me before, was to write thank you notes to journos. Yes. If they get a great piece for your client or, you know, introduced you to somebody, she would get out her stationery box, pull out a card and write an actual handwritten letter. And I, you know, I've always been one to write thank you notes to friends and family. And I thought, but gosh, I've never done a thank you note to a journal before, but it really, it means a lot just saying thank you. And, you know, even if it's an email, I think it's perfectly acceptable, but a handwritten note, just there's something about it and it goes so far. I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, I always, I say always, it's probably fair to say at least 80% of the time, um, I will send a thank you email to a journalist when I see a piece of coverage, even if I knew it was coming because they asked me for a quote or they said they'd write about it. Um, They don't necessarily have to write about it. There may be a number of other restaurants and bars they could have written about and they wrote about mine. So I always just send, well, not always, most of the time, a quick quick thank you. But when I was in my television days, I would be the lead PR on a, so the national publicist on a particular program. So I'll try and think of something that's relatable worldwide. Um, So we had Australian Idol, which is like American Idol. Mm -hmm. Um, We had The Biggest Loser. And so you think you can dance. So those big shows, I was responsible for the PR nationally on that. And then there'd be some state publicists as well. So at the end of those campaigns, and those campaigns would go for a while because you'd be on air for at least two to three months with shows a number of times a week. Plus there's the... um, when you're in pre-production, et cetera. But at the end of those campaigns, I would always do a handwritten note to maybe the 10, 15, 20 journalists around the country that had been uh, really supportive of yep. the program or it had, you know, a number of the um, contestants or the judges, whatever, on um, on their radio show or their, uh, or their newspaper or whatever it may be. And I would do handwritten notes for those because I really felt like they'd gone above and beyond and um, – and that was really, I remember one person saying they'd never written handwritten notes before. So right? if, if if it's appropriate, I definitely think you should do it. Um, I think if you're, if you're sending off a handwritten note every time someone does an online article <laughs> and, you know, you're sending out five a week to the same journalist, you're probably going to annoy the hell out of them. Yeah, it's probably a little over the top. It has been a delight chatting to you today, Jules. Thank you so much for sharing your insight into the industry and your career with us. Thanks, Brooke. And if there are any other PR sectors you would like to know more about, just drop me an email via the website. Thanks for listening to the PR Pod. For more expert tips on working in PR, head to www.theprpod.com.